You're listening to Awakening with Rabbi Ami Silver on the Shefa Podcast Network. Join Rabbi Ami as he shares from the wellsprings of Jewish spiritual teaching and practice and guides us on a path of healing, transformation, and awakening to experiencing the divine. I want to start by sharing a line from the Gemara in Megillah that's, that's very close to my heart. It's based on the Mishnah that says that if you read the Megillah mitnamnem, you are yotze. Mitnamnem means you are kind of dozing off. Nimnum, nimnum. It's almost like an onomatopoeia, like the Z's of a of snoring coming off of the the cartoon image. Mitnamnem yatsa. If you're dozing off during the Megillah, you still fulfill the mitzvah. And the Gemara on Daf Yudcheramudbar asks the following: Hechidami mitnamnem. What does mitnamnem look like? How do we understand the state that we're talking about? Amaravashi nim velonim, tir velotir. It's being asleep, but not completely asleep. Being awake, but not completely awake. Dekarule v'ani. If somebody called you in that state, you would be able to answer. They say your name, you'd rouse up and say yes. But if somebody was asking you a question that you needed to think about, you wouldn't be conscious enough to give a thoughtful answer to any kind of question. And if somebody reminded you of what transpired while you were in this state, you would remember. But implying that it's not a state where you were conscious of what was happening enough to be able to, to really hold some kind of sustained, coherent memory of the events. So it's asleep, not asleep. Awake, not awake. You'd be responsive if someone called your name, but you wouldn't be able to say anything um, coherent. And if you were in this state for Mikra Megillah Yatsa, you fulfilled the mitzvah. Now, it's dear to my heart for one reason, because I can say full exposure here, I one year fulfilled the mitzvah of Mikra Megillah in this way. Um, when we were living outside of Yerushalayim, we had a full day of Purim, and that night came into Yerushalayim and, and heard Megillah a second time, and... and this uh, Gemara became very dear to me when, uh, when it was applicable to my, my own circumstances. Um, but it's also very dear to me because I feel like it's expressing a little bit the experience of Purim itself. Both the story of the Megillah, the, the kind of context and, and, and underpinnings of Purim, and also the actual experience of the day. The whole story of the Megillah is a story of people who are conscious but mostly not conscious and not aware of the events that are transpiring. There's enough of these moments that are strung together that at some point make some kind of coherent um, event take place, but maybe only for a moment and then it disappears once again. The issue of being called by name, which Esther becomes a very important piece in her story. Is she the queen? Is she not the queen? Well, the king hasn't called me. I'm in the palace, but nobody's paying attention to me. Conscious and unconscious, there and not there. If you call my name, I'll show up, but I couldn't tell you exactly what's going on. And then also opening up into this whole realm of, of memory, of there being a memory that we know is there, but we couldn't tell you exactly fully what it is, but yet at the same time, it's still there. And for many people, if they look back on the day of Purim, when it's all said and done, you can look back on the day and, and there's some semblance to what this Kumar is uh, describing. And this leads into what I want to focus on here in our learning, which is that Purim 
is touching on these kind of boundaries between asleep and awake, between awareness and not awareness, between light and shadow. In a sense, you know, we can expand this to the question, is Purim the holiday that celebrates the greatest revelation of God's presence in this world, the most conscious and aware exposure of the creator of all? Or is it the day where God is least revealed, where God is most absent from everything in this world, showing us that we can't find God anywhere, that anything we know of the divine is completely hidden from us and asleep, so to speak. And, and the truth is, Purim, you can't say it's one or the other. Neem velo neem, tir velo tir, asleep and not asleep, awake and not awake. So what's, what's this about? This is something I want to I go into a little more deeply. This question of the nature, the quality of this holiday, I think is, is express, expresses itself throughout the Yivri Chazan, throughout the story of the Megillah itself. I want to start by, by looking at the Gemara Megillah Daftalur for the source of why we read Megillah at night and in the day. We all know we read Megillah twice, right? But why is that? It doesn't say in the Megillah to do this at night and day. Well, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi in the Gemara has an answer. He says, Chayav Adam person is obligated to read Megillah at night and to Lishnota Bayom. Literally means to repeat it in the day, but also I can't um, avoid seeing the, that word Lishnota sleeping the next day. Shenemars, it says in Tehillim Kavbet, Elokai Ekrayomam Velotaaneh. Why do we need to read Megillah at night and at day? Because it says in Tehillim, God, I call to you in the day and you don't answer me. And at night, I'm still calling, and I have no silence. I can't stop screaming to you because you don't respond. Yeshua Levi is saying, that's the source for two times of reading Megillah. Because David Amalekh is saying, I called to you all day without an answer, and I screamed to you all night, and you wouldn't show yourself. You don't answer my prayers in day or in night, and therefore we have to read the Megillah in night and day. Wait, wait a minute. Is that what the Megillah is about? I thought the Megillah is about God answering the prayers. I thought the Megillah is about us being in such a state of despair that God then comes in and, and sweeps everything together and, and, and redeems us in the most powerful way. But Rabbi Shuvalevi is saying, no, there's the unanswered prayer, the scream of day and night. That's what the Megillah is somehow expressing. And, and it's not for nothing that he chooses Tehillim Kavbet to, to bring this Pasuk from. Tehillim 22, It's the song of the morning gazelle, the, the, dawn, the gazelle of the dawn that Chazal says not only is representative of a sort of breaking, slowly emerging redemptive process, that, that exists in this world, but, but more poignantly, they say this is the prayer of Esther herself. This is the prayer that Esther said as she walked to King Achishverosh. Esther herself is compared to the morning gazelle, to that dawn, that, that, that early morning um, breaking, slowly emerging redemptive process. So this pasuk comes from that day on. And, and let's just note that for now. The Megillah somehow is expressive of this, the cry, the prayer that doesn't get answered day or night. 
want to add to this another piece of the puzzle. We all, we many of us know the Gemara Chulin asks Esther min Torah minayin. From where do we know of Esther? Where do we give us a hint of Esther from the Torah? As it says in Devarim Anochi Hastir Astir God says, "I will hide and hide my face. I will doubly hide my face. I will completely hide my face from you on that day." This doomsday prophecy that comes up towards the end of the Chumash, where God is saying, "There's going to be a time when my people leave me." when they're going after foreign gods, when they say all these terrible things are coming upon us because God is surely not with us anymore. And God says, I'm going to be com- make myself completely hidden from them. And Chazal says, this is Esther. Haster, Aster, Esther. It is that reality where God is completely absent from the picture, where God is completely hidden from sight. So, so far we're seeing this kind of backstory, this framing of Purim and the Megillah as being a time when God doesn't answer our prayers and when God is completely invisible to us. And yet, we also know that Purim has this eternal, lasting power. I want to read from you from the, the Rambam. He brings us L'Halacha in the Mishnah Torah, at the end of Hilchon Megillah. This is based on Gemara Yerushalmi and other statements of Chazal. He says, all the books of the prophets and all of the ketuvim, atidim li batelim ot mashiach. In the times of Mashiach, all sifrei nevim, all the books of Nach will no longer be relevant. They will be null and void. Chutz mimigilat Esther, except for Megillat Esther. The only things that will last for all eternity are Megillah Esther, the five books of Chumash, and the Halachot of Torah Shabbat Peh that, that remain for all time. But all of the prophecies, all of the writings, they're going to be irrelevant. They're going to stop being a canon. We don't have those books anymore in the days of Mashiach. But we do have Megillah Esther, this crazy story that is... You know, the unanswered prayer, the Gemara is saying, that's God's hiddenness that we know doesn't have any names of God in it. I mean, it's a halakhic question even. Do you, do you need to put the, the Sefer in Geniza? It doesn't have God's name. There's a, a big discussion in the Gemara. Is this a book that should be canonized? Is there anything holy about this book? And despite all of that, this is the book that's going to remain and surpass all of the other books of prophecy and ketuvim. The Rambam goes on, Even though the memory of all of our pain and suffering will likewise dissipate. As it says in Yeshayahu, God says through the mouth of the prophet, all of those earlier pains, they're going to be forgotten. I'm going to not, they're not going to be before my eyes anymore. As if to say there's going to be some kind of great redemptive comfort that will render all of our suffering just irrelevant anymore. It won't exist anymore. Which, reasonable to think that the Ramah is putting this together because a lot of the Nevi'im and the Ketuvim, the Nevi'im are, a lot of them are speaking about the exiles and the sufferings of, of our people throughout history. All that stuff's going to be gone. Limot Mashiach. Even so, Yemei HaPurim Lo Yibatlu. The days of Purim will never become nullified. They will never dissipate. Shinemar, it says at the end of the Megillah, These days of Purim shall not pass from within, from among the, the Jews. The memory of these days will never be exhausted from the descendants of the Jews. And if you look at this Rambam, 
at face value, you might think, okay, so the Rambam says there's the, the books will be nullified, Megillah Esther points. The memory of pain will, will be gone, but the days of Purim will never be gone. And you might think days of Purim, okay, that, the, the celebration of Purim, the redemption of Purim, right? Well, if we look a little more closely, the Rambam himself, he's not talking about redemptions that won't be forgotten. He's talking about pains that will be forgotten. And that won't be forgotten. Even though the memory of all the suffering will be gone, the days of Purim will never be gone. And I believe what the Ram is saying here is that not only the redemption of Purim will never be gone, but the suffering, the memory of the suffering of Purim will never be gone. And this comes from the Megillah itself. In that very same chapter that the Ram is quoting from, it says, as the Ram says here, the days of Purim will never be forgotten. Then it talks about how Esther writes down, and, and Mordechai, they write down this letter. They send out books and scrolls to all of the Jews and all of the countries of Ahasuerus' kingdom. They send out letters and, and scrolls to tell people to, to keep and observe these days of Purim in their appointed times. Just as Mordechai and Esther established these days, and as they established for themselves and for the descendants of all generations, the matters of fasting and their screams. You would expect the Pasuk to end before those words. You would say, expect the Pasuk to say, no, no, they established that for all time there would be a holiday. Days of, of, of Mishta and Simcha and Yom Tov and gifts and, and all that. But the Megillah explicitly says, no, what they established for all time is these days of Purim and including divrei hatsomot v'za'akatam, their fasting and their screams. And the Rambam himself in Hechotanit when he speaks about the fast of, of the 13th of Adar, of uh, Tanit Esther, he says that we fast on this day as a commemoration of the fasts that they fasted in the days of Haman, as it says, what was meant to be preserved for all generations is the experience, the matters of their fasting and their cries in Shushan, not just their celebration. So here, when the Rambam says it's going to last for all time, Purim's going to last for all time, it's a bit of a darker or more nuanced image that he's saying. It's not just that we're going to be have a drunken party forever. There's going to be a kind of suffering and screaming that we will also be holding on to, that we will also be remembering. Now, what is that about? And how does that even work with this kind of image of Himot Mashiach? As if to say that not only even when redemption comes, we will still remember that pain, but somehow it's part of the, the, the anticipated redemption itself. You know, it would be one thing to say what a redeemed world looks like, what a ge'ula looks like is a time when all of the darkness of my life, all of the pain of my life will be rendered irrelevant. It will be erased from the file, so to speak. But this makes me wonder, you know, maybe part of what this is saying is your tears won't be invalidated. Mashiach's not going to come along and say all of that pain you went through was unnecessary and irrelevant. Somehow, the suffering 
that we go through that emerges or that's expressed through the, the story of Purim and that, that is perhaps the suffering that from the time of Purim until Yemot Mashiach we continue to experience, whether it's collectively, globally, individually, there's something in the redemption that's going to be able to also hold our pain, that's going to validate those tears. And I want to understand a little more deeply what what this is what this is about. You know, as as we we mentioned here, we're, we're looking at the, the part of the Megillah that's going to be the eternal story, and and we know that there's another very famous um, statement of Chazal that relates to the kind of lasting power of Megillah Esther, and that's in Gemara Shabbos Daf Pechet Amud Aleph. It's describing Matan Torah, the giving of Torah. It says Matan Torah that the people stood at the bottom of the mountain, and the Chazal says that doesn't mean they're just standing at the foot of the mountain. This is teaching that God held the mountain over their heads like a barrel. Tahar doesn't mean the foot of the mountain means they're literally underneath the bottom of the mountain. And God says to them, if you accept Torah, mutav, great. But if not, you're going to be buried right there. He comes along and he says, hey, we have an ultimate excuse for Torah. This is the out for every bit of Torah. How could we ever be held accountable for not keeping Torah if this is the way we, we were forced to accept it. You held a mountain over our heads and said, accept Torah or die? Of course we accept the Torah. But you can't now hold us accountable. Even though it's true that at Mount Sinai we were coerced into receiving Torah. We were not liable and accountable for, for Torah from Mount Sinai. Later on, they received it. They accepted it fully in the days of Achashverosh. As it says again here in chapter 9 in the Megillah, that the Jews, they established, they made real, and they accepted. They made real what they had previously merely accepted upon themselves. Meaning that at Mount Sinai, they accepted it. They said, okay, we'll take it. If you're going to kill us, we'll take it. But in the times of Achashverosh, they were Mekayim, that acceptance. That acceptance became solidified, became something real and lasting. So it's not only that the Megillah and that Purim has a unique status in terms of what it's going to mean for the future. The Megillah itself is somehow that which makes all of Torah real. And it seems to go together with that statement of Chazal. Every other book, it's not going to last. This book, this story, this holiday is going to last because this is integral to Torah itself. That there is no receiving of Torah without Purim. All of the Chachamim here agree that Matan Torah wasn't a valid acceptance. That it was only partial. And it's only at the times of Achashverosh that it becomes real. But how could they even be saying this about a story where God doesn't appear? About a story that has 
seemingly no religious um, overtones to it. Uh, a kind of wild, crazy series of events that we almost got killed and then in the end didn't get killed. What, what does that have to do with, with receiving Torah, with Torah becoming real for us, with Torah being established for all time? It's a really bizarre thing. So to try to unpack this a little bit and, and see what this, what this larger picture is, I want to look a little first at the psukim that Chazal is actually quoting from here and then, and then go a little deeper into the Megillah because I think that it's, it's possible that Chazal actually saw something in the story of the Megillah itself that points to a kind of receiving of Torah, that points to a kind of making Torah real in a way that it had never been real before. So to begin, let's just look where what Chazal is quoting. Kimu right? Where did they where did they accept and establish? So that's here in Esther, chapter nine. In we'll start with verse twenty six. This is as you know the whole chapter here. It's talking about writing the letters and establishing the holiday. So we'll start with verse twenty three. The Jews they accepted what they began doing and what Mordechai wrote to them. Now it gives uh, the two version, the two sentence version of the story. What is it exactly that they were commemorating, that they were celebrating here? Ki Haman ben Hamdati Hagagi, this guy Haman, so rare kol hayudim, the hater of all the Jews. Chashav al yudim laavdam, he thought to do away with them. Vehipilpur hu agoral, he drew lots. This was the lottery. Lehumam ul abdam, lehumam. It's a powerful word. It means word. It means in the sense to, to confound them, ul abdam, and to do away with them. This is a bizarre bizarre kind of shift of language. Haman did this thing to do away with the Jews. And in her approach before the king. Who is the her that's being spoken about here? Now, if you were, you know, just to stay all the Mepharshim here too, they're they're likely, they're likewise confused here. Because I would think it's talking about something about the Goral, something about the decree that Haman made that came before the king. But no, some of the Mepharshim, and, and I think if we just think about the story, who is the she who came before the king? That was a turning point. It was Esther. When she, without naming her here, comes before the king, the king said, let's let's make a, a, a decree and all of Haman's plans themselves, it, it, it ended up working against him and, and falling upon his own head and he and his children were, were hanged on the tree. This is the two-sentence story of what this holiday was established for. The next verse is even more bizarre. Therefore, these days are called Purim al-Shem Hapur. The day, the holiday, it's called Purim because of the poor, because of those lots that Haman made to kill the Jews. I'm sorry, but this is one of the most shocking things um, imaginable. A holiday called after the plot to kill and annihilate the entire nation. It's as if to say, this is not nice, but it's almost Purim. It's as if to say, we have a holiday called Holocaust. That's the name of this holiday. The holiday of Purim is called Holocaust. It's named after Haman's attempt to annihilate an entire nation, every single Jew in the kingdom. Oh, but it didn't happen. But we don't call it Salvation Day. We call it Purim. We call it that day where our lives were completely hanging in the balance. Keep reading. All of the things that they experienced and saw and what happened to them. 
Kimu vikiblu hayudim aleim ve'alzaram. Here's our, here's our verse. The, the Jews accepted and received upon themselves and upon their generations. To never, um, to always uphold these days as they are written and as they happen in every single year. And this is then with the next psukim go on and talk about what we saw before, the letters being sent to all the parts of the kingdom and and the Divrei Hatzomot V'zakatam, that includes the screams and the crying and the fasting. So Chazal's saying, Kimu V'kiblu, what they received and accepted for all time, this kind of making real of Torah, it somehow has to do with this crazy turn of events. He wanted to kill them, she came before the king. And that turned everything around. And, and, and I want to look a little more deeply into that story, Esther's actual approach to the king, because I think that if we look there, we can see a little more why Chazal is identifying a kind of Matan Torah here. And in order to see this, we need to think back a little bit to our story of Mount Sinai, to Parsha Yitro, and to the steps that led up to Mount Sinai. And then to look at the steps that led up to Esther coming before the king. I'll start with the following. You remember what happened back at Matan Torah before, before the actual giving of the Torah, right? There were a few days of preparation. There were three days of preparation. Shloshet Hagbala, it's called, the three days of, of separation. Where God calls Moshe up the mountain and says, Go to the nation. Go down and tell them, Get ready for the next few days. Wash your clothing. Get ready for the third day. On the third day, God's going to descend upon the mountain before your eyes. And you have to make a boundary around the mountain. Remember, don't come up the mountain. Don't touch the edge of this mountain. If you touch this mountain, you will die. And Moshe goes down, and he tells them, basically these instructions, get ready, wash your clothing. He says, be prepared for the third day. And he says, one other stage of preparation, let the, the men and the women, the, the spouses, not, not be together during, during these three days of separation. And that all leads up to, on that third day, in the morning, there's, there's resounding sounds and loud voices and, and thunder at the top of the mountain. And, 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 and from there, Harsinai and, and Matan Torah. And this is actually the very next pasuk. There they're standing at the bottom of the mountain. Remember, Chazal says, this is where the mountain is being held over their heads. So I want to ask you something. That preparation... For Matan Torah, three days, clean your clothes, don't touch something. If you touch it, you're going to die. Does that remind us of anything that's happening here in Megillah Esther? It sure sounds a lot like what was taking place in the days leading up to Esther approaching Ahasuerus. And, and I'll go back even further. What's happening before Mount Sinai is that God is telling Moshe, Moshe, you go tell the people such and such and such. Moshe goes down and tells them, then Moshe comes back and delivers their message to God, and God says again, okay, Moshe, tell the people such and such. And Moshe says, well, the people told me this. Basically, this communication is taking place through a messenger. 
And I want, I want to begin to look at Megillah Esther with you. Chapter 4 in, in Megillah Esther. Mordechai knows about the decree. He knows everything that's happened. And he changes his clothes. He's He's wearing sackcloth and ashes. He goes to the middle of the city and he's screaming a very loud scream. He comes up to the gate of the king. Everywhere throughout the palace, the Jews are fasting and, and crying and eulogizing. They're all wearing sock for They're all wearing sackcloth and clothes in mourning. And here, as Mordechai comes to Esther, if you remember, there's actually no direct communication between them. There's a messenger between them. There's Hatach. Right? Esther's maidens first come and tell them what's going on. She sends Hatach, and Hatach goes to Mordechai. He's like, what's going on? Here's some clothes. Esther wants you to change into clean clothes, to change into appropriate clothes. Remember before Harsinai? They were told, They didn't have a change of clothes, but it's to clean your clothes. Here, Mordechai's wearing this clothes of mourning. Esther says, put on something different. And Mordechai, Loki belly, says, no, no, no. I'm not changing my clothes. I'm not taking off my sackcloth. I'm not doing that appropriate kind of preparation that's meant to be the way that somebody stands at the palace of the king. Not this time. And the messenger Hatach goes back and forth between Esther and Mordechai, Esther and Mordechai, to the whole story. And, and I'm not going to read read it so much inside, but just to, to lift up some of the similar themes we saw. Mordechai says, Esther, you have to go to the king to, to, beg, to beg on your people's behalf. And remember, Esther says, wait a minute, you can't just go into the king. Everybody knows if you come to the king without being called, you're going to die. And I haven't been called for 30 days. There too. Remember back at Mount Sinai. Don't come to the mountain. Only the one who's called up the mountain, Moshe, is the one who allowed. Anyone else who's going to come and touch the mountain is going to die. Remember that word, lagat. We'll see it very soon come up here. You cannot touch the mountain if you haven't been called up. Esther too. You can't go into the king if you haven't been called. You're going to die. Now at Har Sinai, you're going to die because... God's presence, the holiness there is so overwhelming and overpowering, it's going to obliterate you. Here in Shushan Habira, why would you die if you go to the king? It's not because God's presence is overwhelming you. You're going to die because there is no God there to protect you. Because the king is the one who's in charge here. And it's the king's rule that determines things. And, and similarly, just like all of B'nai Israel at Mount Sinai were experiencing themselves under the threat of annihilation, whether it's by Midrash Chazal that the mountains held over their heads, accept Torah or you'll die, or what they say themselves when they hear God's overpowering voice, we can't hear God in this intensity, we're going to die. Odmat v'namut. So too in Shushan Abira. You can't go to the king without being called, and the entire people are about to, to die. They're staring their national death in the face because of this decree, because of the overwhelming absence of God. It's the inverse of Mount Sinai. In one place, God's presence is so powerful, it's going to annihilate you. In the other place, God's absence is so powerful, you're going to be annihilated. And in both cases, we have clothes coming into, coming into place, and we have this issue of, of approaching, approaching the king. Esther finally decides to go, and remember what she says, fast for three days. Get ready for three days. I'm reading in the Megillah, but it's the same exact words. It happened on the third day. And we'll look at what happens on the third day. She dresses up in special clothing. She's wearing this time royal garments. 
And she walks into the courtyard, the inner chamber of the king. And as she approaches, remember, she stands at the doorway and the king sees her and he holds out his royal scepter. Vatikravaster, she draws close, Vatiga, Shervid, and she touches the edge of that scepter. Remember what ex- almost exactly what, what Beneso was told not to do in Mount Sinai. Do not touch. Same word, Tiga. Do not, Lo Tiga, Bo. Do not, Unagoa Bekatseyu. Don't touch its edge. Do not touch the mountain. You're going to die. Here, Esther faces the threat of approaching the king, the threat of death. And when the king holds out his scepter, she goes and she touches the edge of the scepter. And one other piece here, which, which is fleshed out more in, in Chazal, but remember the other instructions Moshe gave. Don't come, don't be together, men and women, for the couples not to sleep together. What Chazal is, is, is reading into this story is that Esther is not just going to make a request of the king, but she's going to sleep with the king. Because remember what the whole backstory here is. The king has his harem. He calls in all the women. They sleep with him for a night and he sends them back to the harem for the rest of their lifetime. When Esther says, I haven't been called for 30 days, what she's saying is, yes, I'm the queen. The king chose me as the queen, but you know what? He hasn't called me into his into his chamber for a whole month. I've been living in this separate house. Am I in the harem? Am I in Miami? I have my own palace. Who knows? But, but when she goes to the king, Chazal sees very clearly that she's saying, I'm going to now approach him. And it's the opposite of Lotigash Elisha. It's saying the woman is coming to the man, to the king. And here I want to open up the lens a little bit through Chazal's um, expansion of what's happening here. This is Gemara Megillah, Tadva 15a and b. Explain to us how they see what's going on here as Esther is approaching Yudim. She says, Go. Bring in all of the Yehudim. And then she says, I'm going to approach the king asher lo chedat. I'm going to approach the king inappropriately, against the law. Amar Rabbi Abba, shelo Rabbi Abba says, against the law doesn't just mean against the king's rule. It actually means I'm going to go against dat. It's an anti-religious move I'm making. I'm going to violate, to transgress the Torah itself. Because Esther says, every single day, every single time I was with the king, it was ba'ones, I was coerced, I was not choosing to sleep with him. I was forced into it. This time Esther says, I'm choosing to approach him. It is my choice now, I'm, I'm willing this into being. Avadati. And the loss I'm going to experience there, Keshem Chazal says, just like I was lost from my parents' house when they died, right? I was orphaned. So too, Esther is saying to Mordechai, I'm going to be lost to you from here on in. And here the Gemara is, is, is basically explaining that the rabbis, the rabbis say that Mordechai and Esther were married to one another. And as long as they were married, when Esther is being forced to sleep with another man, to sleep with Achashverosh against her will, so the marriage of Mordechai and Esther is held intact. But here she's saying, in order for me to do what's necessary in this moment, I'm going to have to choose to go, to approach him myself from my own initiative, and that will completely compromise and violate the terms of our relationship, 
of her marriage to Mordechai. Just as I was lost from my parents, she says, I will be lost from you. I will no longer be your wife, Mordechai. That's what's at stake here. Kasher avarati avarati. Until now it was forced and now I am choosing it. It was forced and now I am choosing it. Do you remember what the rabbi said about Matantara? The rabbi said that Matantara was forced upon us. That the reason Harsinai is not valid is because we didn't choose it. Because God threatened us with annihilation and said, either you accept this or you die. And Esther seems to be going through some kind of extremely different, but also similar transition here between I have been forced into this situation until now, this terrible, unspeakably horrible situation. But now I have to choose to enter into it, to engage it on my own terms for my own purposes. Let's keep reading. Chazal gets to the third day. It happened on the third day. She wears royalty. It should say she wears clothing of royalty. No. Wearing malchut doesn't just mean she's wearing fancy clothing. In fact, it has nothing to do with her clothing. It means that she's dressed in Ruach HaKodesh. She's donning divine inspiration. She knows that despite this being lokidat, despite this being the, the most crazy kind of act that she has to engage in, she's walking with Ruach HaKodesh. It's clear to her. She has divine inspiration that God is with her. Right? In a story, again, where God does not appear, come out from the, from the heavens in a cloud and speak from the top of the mountain. Here, Esther dresses herself in this knowing, this deep sense and intuition and certainty, this is the divine truth of this moment. This is what has to happen. God is with me. And as she approaches the king, she's walking, she's standing in the inner chamber, of the, in the inner courtyard of the king, Rablevi says, as Esther's walking towards the king, she first dresses herself in this certainty in this knowing that God is with her. But as she's approaching, she gets to a place called Beit Hatzlamim, the house of idols. The house of Tzlamim, of shadows, of illusions. She enters into the chamber of illusions, where, in a sense, this, this image that, that comes to mind here is... She comes with such certainty at first and she walks into this corridor and here she realizes there's nothing here that, that shows itself to be true. That certainty I had, that image, that knowing of God with me, it's just abandoned me. Look what it says, The shechina that was with her evaporates. It completely leaves her. Amra, she screams out, Eli, Eli, Lama Zavtani, God, God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you abandoned me? This too is from Tehillim Kafbet. What we said is the Tehillim that Chazal says is all about Esther's experience. If you read that Tehillim, you should read it from now to Purim, read it on Purim. You can see how many hints there are to the story of Purim. Va'alevushi, Yepilu Goral, it says. But 
to come back. God, why have you abandoned me? Esther first comes with a full sense of God being with her. And as she approaches the king, this is where she experiences God completely abandoned her. And she cries out, why did you leave me? Now, this would be the moment where the most reasonable thing to do would be to turn around and run away. Would be to say, okay, it's clear to me now, God isn't with me. But this is the moment where Esther decides to then take the next step. Where Esther walks to the king, mamash, all by herself. Look at what, look at what Chazal says here. Lama zavtani shema tadan al shogei kemezi al onis karatzon. Why did you leave me, God? Are you judging mistaken actions as intentional actions? Do you consider a forced situation ones to be the same as ratzon, as a complete choice? Now, this is already throwing the whole equation into question because just above, Esther had said, wait a minute, I had been forced until now to be with the king, but now it's Baratso, now I'm choosing. And now when God leaves her, she says, wait a minute, you think I'm choosing this, God? You're considering my forced situation to really be a choice? Rashi here says basically something to the effect of, even though I'm choosing to go, I am still forced into this. Yes, Esther is choosing, quote-unquote, but, but is she really choosing? Can she, can she really not? Can she really be choosing this without being forced? No, she's being forced because how else is she going to be an instrument of change here? How else is there going to be any glimmer of salvation to come? There's no other clear option here for her. And what she encounters here is... First, the sense of clarity that, yes, God is with me, and, and then she confronts this reality where God, Mamash, abandons her. And it's here where, in a sense, God says in Devarim, I'm going to hide and hide my face. I'm going to be completely gone to you. You know, in, the, in those psukim, God actually says, I'm going to abandon them, the same word here, and I'm going to hide my face from them. Esther had to experience the complete abandonment of God for her to make an action that was really her own. This is what happened on the third day with the change of clothes. There's no voice from God coming from the top of the mountain. The people, they're not going to change their clothes. They're actually sitting there and mourning and wailing. Where is there a voice coming? There's a voice from the people screaming and crying in the streets. There's the voice of Mordechai crying to God, crying in anguish over the decree. There's the voice of Esther screaming, how dare you abandon me, but yet you have abandoned me. The voice of God is absent. That's the difference between Harsinai and Esther. The only voice heard here are the cries and the screams of the people. The people who are the ones who are making something happen. The people who are the ones who are risking everything to, to cling to life. At Mount Sinai, we were not given a chance to express our ratzon. We were not given a chance to really embrace life on our own. We were forced into it. We were overwhelmed by God. We were threatened by God. 
And here, God threatens us, but then God completely leaves us. And it's here that Esther, in a sense, becomes the giver of the Torah, becomes the receiver of the Torah. Kimu It happened when she approached the king. When she approached the king, God was not there. God had to not be there for Esther to step onto the stage and become the person who she became and touch into her own eternity. You know, we have a Megillah Esther. We tell her story because of that moment. We tell her story because of what she was willing to do to bring salvation without the help of God. Now, at the very same time, can we really say God wasn't with her? I mean, on some level, is there any moment in the Megillah where God is is not more with her than in that moment? Isn't God completely with her in that moment? Yes, God is completely with her in that moment. But God is only with her in the way of Anuchi Haster Astir Panai. God is with her by not being there, by not being visible to her, by leaving her abandoned to choose for herself to the best of her capabilities, aware and not aware, asleep and not asleep, awake and not awake, but screaming and crying and stretching herself out, risking everything for the sake of her own life and the life of her people. This is when Matan Torah took place. This is when Torah became real for us. When in the total absence of God, we were able to experience the fullness of our own being in this world. And it included crying and screaming. And we read Megillah in the day and the night because really the salvation happened because God didn't answer our prayers. If God had answered our prayers, Esther would have never walked into the king's palace. If God had taken care of us in the explicit outward way, like God did for us in Egypt, we wouldn't really be able to fully embrace the freedom and the depth and the truth of a living connection with God and a living connection with our lives in this world because we would still be, in a sense, overwhelmed by God's presence. But with, with God completely withdrawing from the picture, it leaves total or close to total space for us to step into our place here. And that's where we can receive Torah, where we can say, you know what, my life has something to it that is ultimately meaningful, that has a potential to touch something of ultimate, eternal, lasting kiyum of existence here. My life, not in the story and the narratives and the mythos of, of the Torah, of all the books of the Nevi'im, of everything that I've been told and, and I can believe in, a kind of, I don't, I don't mean this literally, but a kind of fantastical reality that we place upon ourselves. Every holiday except for Purim has some kind of miraculous narrative to it. Purim's narrative is a story of people doing terrible and doing very human things. It's drunkenness, it's jealousy, it's power, rage, shame, crying, screaming, fasting, despair, hopelessness, courage, celebration, drunkenness, war. It's a messy story. But you know what? 
more so than any other story. This story actually looks like the world that you and I live in, doesn't it? A world of greedy, lusty, sometimes courageous, sometimes very honest people who sometimes create terrible consequences and sometimes create ultimately um, redemptive consequences. And it's a story that exists in these shadows and that never really emerges from the shadows. You know, the end of the story, nothing really happens. Esther's still in the palace. Okay, now Mordechai is also in the palace. It says most of his brothers like him. <laughs> it's a story that begins in a political reality and ends in a political reality. It doesn't end with a happy ending. It ends with a ending that just looks like life as we know it, doesn't it? And so it becomes very powerful to me when Chazal says, this is the story that's going to last the Yimot Mashiach. And when Chazal says, this is a story that carries your screams and your cries that are going to be part of the redemption of the Yimot Mashiach. Our experience in this world that's absent of God in any revealed way. This world where God is Eli Eli Lama Zavtani where we don't walk around bumping into the divine everywhere. We don't feel the overwhelming presence. We have to somehow, like Esther, embody a life of truth and meaning and divine purpose only in our own selves. There is no one else who can do it for us. And there is no one there to force us into it. What we are forced to do is to make a choice. What we are forced to do is to reach into the bowels of our own experience and, and really confront what it is that we're, that we're encountering and say, you know what? This is what is right now. Am I going to do something about this? Is this going to be something real? Or am I going to say, you know, to hell with it. It's all meaningless anyway. It's all lost cause. Esther was willing to say what I know more deeply than the truth of the Torah, than what's right and wrong in this moment, is that there's a truth of what I need to do that goes against everything I've known until now, everything that is supposed to be. Because you know what? What is right now is not what it's supposed to be. It's merely reality. And by confronting reality in the most honest way, Esther stepped into the role of Redeemer. Now, this is, in the understanding of Chazal, this is God in the Megillah, right? Anochi hastir astir panai. Anochi, the first word of the Torah, Anochi Hashem Elokecha. How is Anochi going to be here by astir astir panai? Where, how are you going to relate to God? It's not going to be the way it had been in the past. It's going to be in your experience of that absence, in your experience of that abyss where God is not. Esther is the hidden face of God. That's her name. 
In the Kitvei Ari, it's brought that that the name Esther is the gematria of the name Aleph Dalet Nun Yud. When you spell out all the letters, right? If you spell out Aleph Aleph Lamed Pei, you spell out Dalet Dalet Lamed Taf Nun Yud, you get to the same numerical value of the name Esther. So that's just a, a, another hint, another deep and powerful remez to this reality that it's not that God is absent in an objective way. But the way in which God is present in our reality is by being invisible, by being absent. And the way that God is encountered in our lives and the Yemot HaMashiach, that's going to be the full understanding and clarity of this depth of relationship, is that God is here by not being here in a revealed way. By giving us, ourselves, to discover what's real, what's eternal, what's ultimately meaningful and deserving of Kiyum in this world. I want to close with, with one other piece of Gemara from Gemara Yoma, which, which in a sense touches on this same dynamic and, and, and becomes, I think, very relevant to, again, the, the change of times and history that took place around the times of Megillah and Esther and that continues to till today. It says in the Gemara Yoma, uh, 69b they're talking about the Anshei Knesset HaGadola, the men of the greatest son they say why were they called Anshei Knesset HaGadola? Yoshna, because they restored the crown to its original place what does that mean? well Moshe Rabbeinu came along in, in Sefer Tvarim Yud Moshe says God is HaKel HaGadol HaGibur Vahanora God is the powerful the great and powerful and terrifying one and Moshe goes on there and he's explaining, look at, just look at what God did for you when, when God took you out of Egypt. We see from the miracles and the wonders of the Exodus how powerful, mighty, and terrifying God is. After Yirmiyahu, Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah comes in the times of Yirmiyahu saw the destruction of the temple. There are, there are invaders, other nations who are dancing in God's palace. Where is God's terrifying presence now? Lo Amar Nora, Yirmiyahu, he has a pasuk where he talks about God as being Gadol and Gibor, but not Nora. He's saying, no, that terrifying quality, it's not here in this world anymore. Just look at what's happening. Ata Daniel, Daniel came along and said, No Mishtabim Bivana. Daniel, who is basically a contemporary of Mordechai and Esther, he says, other nations are, are turning your children into slaves. Where is that might that you spoke of once long ago? When he describes God, he leaves out the word Gibor. He says, there's no might of God anymore. That God who was is no longer. Both Yirmiyahu and Daniel are saying, They say, no, on the contrary. The might beneath God's might, the ultimate gvura of God, the ultimate might of God is not by wiping out the enemies of, of Israel. The ultimate might of God is seen by the fact that God is kovesh yitzro, is overcoming God's own impulse to, to fight and, and destroy, and the power of withdrawal, the power of withholding. To allow wickedness to exist in this world despite the divine truth and divine might. That is God's truer might. That very same thing that you're seeing, people dancing in the, in the temple. 
That is God's 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 Nora'ut. That is the terrifying power of God. Because we look at the what the the reality before our eyes, and we st- we're we're astounded. How is it possible that this nation is still able to survive even when their palace is 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 completely run over and people dancing in it, when there are slaves to other nations, when they're hated and destroyed and oppressed, how is it possible that they're even alive anymore? This is a wild kind of statement here where Yermiyam and Daniel were basically looking at what's before them saying, you know, God, that mighty and terrifying God is no longer. And Nanshe's Knesset of are saying, no, the very same thing you're looking at is even more astounding. Because if we just look at our situation as it is right now, Yes, it's not what we may have been instructed or based on previous experience expected for things to be. This isn't how it's supposed to be. This isn't what's supposed to be in God's world. But look at what is. How is this even possible? That itself is an even more astounding power that we're confronting. Gemara goes on, Rabbanon hechi avdi hachi. How is it that your Miyahu Daniel could have come along? How could they have come along and say, Well, Moshe Rabbeinu, you had this way of addressing God, God will give or Nora, but we say no more. How could they come along and go against Moshe's words? Rabbi Elazar says, And this really brings it all home. How is it that your Miyahu and Daniel said what they said, that there's no more strength, there's no more might, there's no more terrifying presence? They could say what they said because they knew that God is a true God. This is a God of truth, and therefore, we're not going to speak lies about God. In a sense, they're davening to God, and they can't bring themselves to say, God o gibor venora, because of what they see in front of their very eyes. And the reason that is valid is because they're being utterly honest with the God of truth and the God of honesty. Saying, we know that God doesn't want our lies. We know that God wants our authentic truth. And if this is the authentic truth that we're witnessing right now, this is what God wants of us, and this is appropriate. Which then also means that the Ajay Knesset HaGadola, when they come along and they say, no, the, the Gvura and the Nora'ut, the power, the might, the terrifying nature, the trem- tremble before God in our day and age, they're also being honest. They're not whitewashing anything. They're saying, we look at our world and we are utterly honest about it too. We're not saying that God is that same revealed might and power that we saw in the Exodus. We know that our experience is different. Just look around us. But how do I look at my world with really open eyes and see it as God's world that still exists here with God? That's another kind of terrifying witnessing. That's another kind of power and gdula that I'm experiencing. And the Maharsha says, this is just, just so beautiful, he says, when did the Anshei Knesset HaGdullah say this? On what basis did they make this statement to reinstate God's Gadol Kibor Venora? Well, it was at the end of the 70 years of the Babylonian exile when they saw that the Jewish people have been saved by all of these sufferings. Kigon Ma'ase Haman Mordechai. Just like the story of Haman, 
who was saved through the actions of Mordechai, who himself was part of this group, part of the men of the great assembly. What we're seeing here is that Purim is the time where we learned, where we were beginning to learn, and we're still beginning to learn that our entire way of, of, of witnessing God in this world has to be different than it had been before. That what God is teaching us from Purim until now and throughout all time, and, and what will maybe this thing of being the Yomot HaMashiach is that we'll ultimately come to a deep and, and global understanding of, is that this is how God is now. In the absence, in the experienced absence or the apparent absence, in the way in which we have to confront and negotiate our own human stories and challenges and hopes and despairs, and deal with them and find ways to choose what is true, to be utterly honest with our own experience, and to encounter God in that honesty. That is what we learn from Megillah Esther. That is what Purim is teaching us. And just to bring it back then, this is the scream that continues in the abyss. Part of encountering this world with honesty is that we're willing to continue to cry out and not be answered because the answer isn't where we're going to find God. It's in that cry. It's in that scream. Was Esther answered in her prayer? She wasn't answered by God then coming in response to answer. Her prayer was her answer. Her prayer was, you're not going to do it. I'm going to do it. The world isn't going to fix itself for me. I'm going to do what I can to bring fixing. It doesn't look right. So what if it doesn't look right? It's not right. But in a deeper level, this is ultimately what's right. Because I'm being completely and deeply truthful and honest to this moment. It's for this moment that you have been brought to this particular circumstance and situation. This is where you are and this is where God is to be found or not found, or found and hidden. Good Purim. Many of these recordings are from Rabbi Ami's ongoing weekly classes given at Yeshivat Sharei Shalom in Jerusalem. For more information, go to shalom.org.il forward slash about. This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Rav Daniel Kohn. For more from the Shefa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.